Hi, I'm Dana Stevens, Slate's film critic, and this is a Slate spoiler special on Marie Antoinette. Now, remember, the spoiler special is a feature where we ruthlessly spoil the secrets of current movies. So if you're planning to see Marie Antoinette and you don't know what happens to the Queen at the end, or you have another reason to not want to have the secret spoiled, um, wait until you've seen the movie before you listen to this feature. So I'm here in the studio with Julia Turner, who's a Slate editor. Hi, Hi. Julia. Hi. And we both saw Marie Antoinette in the last few days, not together. Both had intense reactions. I think this is a movie that provokes intense reactions. And um, we had a couple points we wanted to discuss. If you want to get started, Julie, I think our, our, our big question when we first discussed the movie after seeing it was about the tone. We can't decide, at least I'll say for myself, I can't decide, is this a satire of Marie Antoinette? Is it a homage to Marie Antoinette? What is the film's attitude toward its protagonist? And it's absolutely key to understand that in order to come out of this movie with anything. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's a bit of a send-up. I think we're supposed to find Marie Antoinette ridiculous in a number of scenes and not feel contemptuous of her for that, but uh, sort of sympathetic to the fact that she's this cosseted figure that has no sense of what's really going on in the world. Can you give an example of a scene that you found to be a send-up? Because there were a couple of scenes that you found satirical in tone that I think may have gone over my head. Because to me, it, it seemed like a very um, a very sweet and lighthearted tribute to the people's princess. Yeah, well, I mean, I think part of it is when she reads some Rousseau to her handmaidens who spend most of their time drinking and, you know... Carousing. Snorting snuff and playing stupid word games, and they're not particularly bookish sorts. And she sort of reads this line from Rousseau that seems to have no meaning or relation to what they're actually doing. And they all kind of stare prettily off into space, and they're like, huh. And then it cuts to more frolicking. And you just, like, they're not equipped at all to understand Rousseau, you know, his relation to what was going on in their country at the time, what it all actually meant. And I think you're supposed to you know, you're not supposed to think, oh, what a thoughtful princess. You're supposed to think, what an idiot. Right. And to me, I guess I would have to say that that kind of satire isn't near brutal enough for the brutality of what happens to Marie Antoinette at the end. I think I was more bothered than you were by this movie's lack of political content and the fact that her reading Rousseau at that moment is essentially the same as reading them their death sentence, right? I mean, we know that it's exactly the ideas of Rousseau and the ideas of the French Revolution that are pressing on their little bubble, just waiting to pop it, which, of course, happens at the end of the movie when, you know, the Bastille is stormed and the castle is broken into and she's spirited away. And I felt that, in a way, the pleasure that the movie took in Marie Antoinette's pleasures just overrode any kind of satirical intent behind those scenes. Yeah, the party scenes do look like fun. <laughs> they do. It just looks like a blast to be Marie Antoinette or a member of the French court. It's kind of amazing, too, how, how she shoots it so that you feel like you're drunk as well. There are a couple of scenes where she, the way it's shot is sort of amazing. You feel like you're in the middle of this carousing bender, too. I will say that Sofia Coppola films a great party. I mean, she has a lot of <laughs> gifts as a filmmaker. I don't think that it's, she's a very coherent filmmaker, and I don't think this is a very coherent film, but... In Lost in Translation, in her first film, The Virgin Suicides, and here, there's a glorious party scene in each of those three movies, and a sort of sense of this party that will never end, and yeah, kind of a this heady intoxication. Yeah, there are a couple of them, I think. But I also think that the movie has some sense of hangover, too, that there's this sense of, you know, decadence, or fiddling while Rome burns, or, you know, there's these parties are a little bit ominous, they're a little bit out of control, and you sort of get the sense that the pleasures are really ephemeral. I'm not sure what she wants us to make of that, but, um, for example, the the scene, this is not actually a party, it's sort of like a fashion party, but the scene where she's trying on all those shoes, or basically the king rebuffs her once again and won't have sex with her, 
And right. Just to catch the, the listener up, if you haven't seen the movie, the, there's a big central sort of shopping montage, right, when she's had it with her impotent king husband who won't conceive a child with her. And so she goes on a huge shopping binge, and it's all set to the tune of a, a 1980s Bow Wow Wow song. It's sort of the centerpiece, aesthetically, of the movie, I think. Right. And um, she's she's sort of just frolicking around looking at these shoes, and, they're, you know, it's it really is like a rock video in the middle of the movie. Like, they just are looking at pretty cupcakes and pretty morsels and eating things and sort of gorging themselves visually and otherwise. But I don't think, I don't know, that scene didn't actually make me want to be doing that. Did you actually want to be there trying on all those little shoes and eating all those cupcakes? It looked so saccharine and so sweet and so overblown. Yeah, no, I think I felt like I, I wanted there to be a big barfing sequence afterwards. I mean, it was all just so intensely about oral gratification that maybe I'm just more puritanical than you are, <laughs> but I just couldn't stop judging the uh, the French court the whole time and waiting for their comeuppance, which, of course, though it historically comes, we never get to see in the movie, since the movie does end at a very interesting moment right before the terror and the violence and the guillotine and all of that would begin, right? Yeah. Just as they're as they're leaving the palace. Well, the ending of the, the movie and the way that she, that Sofia Coppola begins to bring the revolution into the film is really interesting. And, and we were starting to talk about this and didn't actually finish our thought. But she, so at the end of the movie, she and her husband sort of ride off in this carriage. And it's very ominous because you know they're going to what will eventually be their deaths. And they're leaving this whole sheltered palace slash prison behind. But you don't, it's hard to know what to make of it. Well, the movie wants to posit that there's been a development in Marie Antoinette's character over the course of the movie, right? And in Jason Schwartzman's as well. But just to concentrate on the protagonist, she's supposed to go, in the logic of the movie, from being this very frivolous, airheaded mall rat of a queen to being this sort of mature, wifely, womanly queen who sticks by her king at the end and refuses to leave his side when they try to take her away from the palace before the revolution. And for me, I never saw, given the script and the story that Sofia Coppola gave us, how she got to that point. Yeah. It, it seemed as if three quarters of the movie was about shopping, and then there was a sort of brief coda that was vaguely about politics, which without ever really taking a political stance, and that bothered me a lot. Right. I mean, I, I'm sort of able to accept that the movie is not actually a biopic of Marie Antoinette and is not trying to get us to understand... Marie Antoinette and who she was and how oh, she Oh, by no means, be. but on its but, own terms. Right, but if you are supposed to understand this character, this Kirsten Dunst character, as some sort of imprisoned darling and how she handles that, it's still very unsatisfying as a portrait of her emotional growth. Because, I mean, there are the threads. That scene at the end where she refuses to leave the castle and she wants to stay with her husband as the mob is growing ever closer is totally perplexing on one hand because... You think, why wouldn't she just go with all of her handmaidens off to... She already cheated on him with the Swedish Right, count and just continue the party somewhere else. But there are, I mean, they sort of do plant that notion earlier on that sort of her one, she does have this sense of family loyalty. When she first arrives at the court, she's perplexed by it, but she feels very loyal to her mother. And it's very important to her mother, the Empress of Austria, that this marriage goes well and that everything goes well. And so there, there is this notion that she has this sense of loyalty, that she has sort of personal loyalties, even if she can't conceive of anything outside of her own family and her own home. Yeah. Okay, well, we should wrap up soon, but uh, um, I just wanted to quickly discuss the uh, the close angle in the movie, since obviously this is a movie all about fashion. Sofia Coppola is kind of a fashion icon and the muse of Marc Jacobs and um, and has amazing taste in costumes, or at least manages to pick great costumers. Um, so as Slate's fashion editor, among other things, um, maybe you could discuss what you thought of the clothes in the movie. Yeah, we're running a piece on this wonderful book called Queen of Fashion, which is the scholarly study of Marie's clothes and what she actually wore and you know what those choices actually meant. And the book basically argues that she employed 
clothing and her ability to dress herself and her taste as a way of exerting power within the court of Versailles, which, as the movie portrays pretty well, I think, when she showed up there, she had none and had no real way to exert herself. Um, The movie sort of takes some liberties with what she actually wore, but gets a lot of the details right. That scene at the beginning where she's stripped on the border between France and Austria, that actually happened. It actually was customary to strip her, her of all of the Austrian clothes that she had on and to put her in French clothes. Similarly, the crazy scenes when she shows up and is being dressed by all these courtiers and it takes forever and they're all in the room watching her get dressed. Like, that actually happened. The one thing that the movie doesn't point out that the book notes, interestingly, is that actually the fashions of Versailles were very conservative compared to what was considered fashionable in Paris. So the clothes that they put her into were considered dowdy and more uh, old-fashioned and Wow, so the carefully engineered Parisian outfit she had on was probably torn off and oh, yeah. thrown away Discarded or in the woods of Austria. Exactly. So I thought that was interesting. I mean, the, you know, the, the choices are all very canny in the film and, and to some degree reflect what actually happened and to some degree don't. But. I think maybe you can tell from, you know, the number of things that we disagree on or see differently in this discussion that it's a movie that provokes a lot of discussion. And even if you, you hate it, I think you'd be glad you saw this movie, don't, don't you think? Would oh, you recommend I definitely it to think so. I mean, it's so all of her choices are so interesting, you know, it, it, whether you hate them and despise them and find them. And <laughs> yeah, the mere idea of setting a Marie Antoinette biopic to 80s music in itself is so bizarre that you've got to be either either drawn to it or repulsed by it. And either way, it's, it's aesthetically and visually quite a treat to see the movie. No, I, I certainly agree. Thank you for joining us for this late spoiler special. Thanks, Julia. Thanks for having me, Dana. And please join us for the next Slate spoiler special. For Slate.com, I'm Dana Stevens. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.